The sermon text this morning is Genesis 1, verses 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is, that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Years ago, there was um, an exhibit at the New York City Zoo. It was in the primate section with the apes and the monkeys, and there was this cage, and the cage just had this uh, sign on it that said, world's most dangerous animal. And in this cage was a mirror, so that when you looked inside, you would see yourself. Now, what they're promoting was this idea that humans are simply uh, the world's most dangerous animal. And it really raises the question significant to all of us, is who are we? I mean, what does it mean to be human? I mean, this is probably one of the most existential, existentially important question we have. Who are we? What are we doing here? I mean, to not know this leaves one uh, completely insecure in their own self-understanding. Now, when Moses was writing uh, Genesis, he was writing to the nation of Israel. They had been subjugated, they had been enslaved for generations, they had been dehumanized, they had been treated like animals. And so he's trying to bring before them, this is who you are. This is where you've come from. Now last week we saw that God has created all things by his word, the heavens and the earth, but now we want to focus just on the sixth day where he's holding up his highest creation to us. I, I say that humans are the highest creation, because he spends the most amount of time on it, just in chapter 1. But he's going to dedicate next week all of chapter 2 to the creation of the, of the male and the female. But not just that. You notice that God deliberates before creating the man, unlike all the other creation. So all the other stories on those first five days, you don't see God deliberating over creation. And not only that, but when he creates man, he creates him directly. Like in verse 24, he says, let the earth bring forth animals. But here, he creates them directly. Not just that, but God gives all of creation in subjection to the man. So you have this incredibly 
kind of apex of God's creation. And when I say man, I mean human. I mean male and female. So, so Moses is trying to answer this question, what does it mean to be human? He's trying to answer, if you want to use biblical language, what's it mean to bear the image of God? Do you know what you are? I mean, do you know your origins? Do you know what makes you you? Because that's what he's speaking about today. So three words I want you to think with me on, and they'll kind of be the you know, little place markers for us. One is dignity, capacity, and responsibility. Dignity, capacity, responsibility. Um, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There is a dignity that comes to you because you bear his image. <clears throat> There's also capacities given to you with which you will reflect him to the nations. And there are responsibilities that we bear as humans made in his image uh, that we are to go forth into the world. So those are the three kind of, you know, if you will, placeholders, dignity and capacity and responsibility. Let's look at each one. Dignity. Uh, notice this is the sixth day, and look with me back at 24. He says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So <clears throat> here he is creating animals. He's filling the earth. Remember, on the third day he formed the earth. On the sixth day he fills the earth, and he fills it with everything. But not just animals and creeping things, but also humans. Look with me at 26. It, he has created man in his image, after his likeness. Now, there are similarities between animals and humans. Obviously, they're both created on the sixth day. Uh, they're both created from the dust. They both eat the same thing. They're both called to be fruitful and multiply. But, but, but then it stops, because then man is created in the very image of God, after his likeness. And you see him deliberate, let us make man. There's a deliberation going on, a, a planning, a processing, a, an idea. Now the question is, who's he deliberating with? Well, some want to say he, God's talking to angels. A bunch of angels are there. Well, angels are never in the creative process, and they don't bear the image of God, so I think that's unlikely. And beside that, what are angels going to do to add to God? Uh, some want to say it's divine deliberation. God's just kind of talking out loud. Well, I don't know. Can't prove that one way or the other. Uh, scholars have long seen, though, that when God says, let us make man, he is speaking with plural, with plurality. And, and, and we see the seeds of the triune God here. Now, let me explain why I say that. You know, we look at the scriptures with what we call a canonical approach. A canonical approach is that you're looking at Genesis, but you're looking at Genesis in light of the whole canon, the whole Bible. So just like we saw last week, you know, you have God Elohim acting, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, but then you have the Word actually creating. And then we went to John 1.1, if you remember, and it says, in the beginning was the Word. So John, the gospel writer, sees, he, he begins his gospel in the same way that Moses began Genesis. He's showing us that Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's helping us understand that Jesus Christ was there in the beginning creating. And so when God says, let us make man in our image, 
we see this triune picture of God. In embryonic form, no doubt, in seed form, it will be clear later as Scripture progresses. I don't know that Moses understood all of this. But as you can understand, we in the New Testament have a much broader and deeper understanding than the writers in these first number of books. But what we see is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit making us in his image. That doesn't mean we're identical to God. It doesn't mean we're equal to God. The word image has this reflective idea. We're representing God. Now, in other creational stories, the humans are always created to be slaves to the gods. But he makes us to be an ambassador. He makes us to represent him. You know, so in the ancient world, that a king or an emperor would often put his statues, statues of himself, images of himself, on the different borders of his domain, so that all would know this is the owner of the land. This is the king of the land. Well, God makes us in his image and places us in his kingdom so that we would reflect him to all of creation, that we would lead in all creation. And because we, unlike all of creation, bear his image, there's a dignity to that. You bear the image of God. Now, I'm speaking whether you're Christian or not here. The fact that you are made as a human, you bear the image of God. God has stamped his image. This, this is what the Bible speaks to when we speak about the value of humanity. You know, when you live long enough in the world, you understand how we tend to value people in the world. We tend to value people based upon what they do, what they produce. How many badges of honor do they have on their chest? You know, what have they accomplished? How beautiful are they? How much money have they earned? What kind of status have they attained? What kind of success have they felt? You know, we, we, we look and we draw value based upon what we do, what we're capable of, what we're producing. Those who are young, perhaps, or those who are old, those who are sick, those who are handicapped in some way, they don't have the same value. You, know, you think about the disciples trying to shoo the children away from Jesus when he's launching his kingdom. What are they going to do for us? They can do nothing for us. We tend to look at people, and this is a dangerous thing, because if your value is resonant in what you can produce, then may God help you if you begin to fail, or if you, get, if you grow old, or if you get sick, or if you're not at the top of your game anymore. If your value is always rooted in what you're producing or doing, then you're living on very, very shaky ground because nobody maintains, nobody constantly stays up. You think about the, the stars in Hollywood or the, the athletes that are the stars. Age is just pressing them to a devalued position. But what, what Moses is saying is, we have value because we've been made in the image of God. This is why we support the rights of the unborn. This is why we, we care for those who are older and sick. This is why we oppose euthanasia. This is why we respect people. You know, James says, with your mouth you bless God and you curse others made in the likeness of God. This is why we respect all people. This is really, you know, to think about dignity coming from the image of God, it does cause us to pause in terms of our vitriol towards politicians or towards those that we don't like. 
What level of respect? There is a level of respect that we ought to give to all people because they all bear the image of God. You might not like their policies. You might not like their decisions. But we don't want to lose the fact that all people bear the image of God. This is why we oppose racism. Racism, the devaluing of people based on a color or a culture. Notice one thing, that he creates the animals according to their kinds, plural. There's not kinds of people, just one. He just made them, male and female. There aren't kinds. They may be black, they may be brown, they may be white, they may be yellow, but but there's just one kind of human that God created. This is why racism is not, it's not a sociological issue per se. It's not really educational. It's really theological. It's opposing the image of God in man. So if you're here and you feel unnecessary or you feel like you never measure up or you feel like you don't bring the same value or you don't, you're not as successful, that's not where you draw your value from. And may I encourage you, God has conferred upon us a dignity, upon every single person, young, old, because we bear his image. There is an inherent dignity that is given to us by God it's really humbling to us to know that you know we didn't earn this. God just gave it to us out of his mercy. So the first thing we see about who are we, we are people bearing a dignity based upon the image of God that has been stamped upon our souls. But this dignity that we bear is also seen in the capacities that we have. I mean, it begs the question, how do I reflect his image? How do I display his image to the world? Well, look at the capacities we have. Look with me at 26 and 27. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You think about if, you know, families, mothers and fathers have children, children tend to resemble or kind of reflect the image of the parent. They aren't identical to the parents. They, they have their own look, but they sure do have almost attributes communicated to them from the parents. You see it in their mannerisms, you see it in their looks, their hairstyle, their face, you know, their facial features. You know, they kind of resemble the parents. Well, God has given us capacities to resemble him. He's communicated. Theologians call, the, call this the communicable attributes of God. He has communicated certain things to us by which we reflect him to the world. Now, let me give you some examples. You know, we have rationality, right? We can think, we can, we can act, we can reason. God thinks and wills and acts in Scripture as we do. Animals don't do this. Animals can maybe solve some simple mazes and, and they can maybe find food to exist and to live. <clears throat> but animals don't, they don't think. They don't rationally process. They don't develop in their thinking. Beavers are still be building dams like beavers have always built dams. But, but we are rational. We process. We plan. We execute. You look at transportation or agriculture, you look at communication, you look at medicine. There's all these developments that God has given to us, capacities that animals don't have. This idea of thinking, that's why David says in Psalm 32, 
Don't be like the horse or the mule who has no understanding. They must be controlled by bit and bridle. We're not, you can't reason with an animal, but we can reason. We can debate with one another. We, we can process thought. God has given us this capacity to reflect his image to the world. But not just rationality, relationships. We have a unique ability to relate to one another, to climb in each other's lives. I mean, God has, has revealed himself to be a triune God, a God in community, and he draws us into this community. Animals may have some form of community, but you'll never walk into a barn and see grandmother cow hanging on the wall of the cat, you know, the, some other cow. That's grandma. You, you, they don't relate that way. We have capacity to love. We have capacity to have passion, to reconcile to mourn, to comfort with those that are close to us. That's incredible the way that even, you know, no creation, creation communicates, but they don't speak like we speak. God speaks and we speak. Our words can comfort. Our words can also wound. We have capacities to love and express love to one another that animals do not have. He's made us to be relational beings. This is why COVID and all the separation and pulling people out, this is why it got so fatiguing and tiring, because we want to be with people. Most of us do. <laughs> but also, not just, not just rationality and not just relationships, but morality. Image bearers have a moral being. God is moral. He makes moral judgments. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good. When he sees the man without the woman, he says, it's not good. He makes these, so do we. We make moral judgments. We have this innate sense of what is right and wrong. This isn't a social construct. I mean, you see children as young as two years of age when they're told not to do something. When the parent turns away, the child will look back to do it. They know what's going on. That's not a social construct, that's innate sense. Animals don't have this. One time Carol made lunch for us, and um, she put all the sandwiches on the table and came in to get us, and we all go walking in the kitchen, and there's no sandwiches anywhere. The table is just clear. And uh, there was Max, our 105-pound, at this point 110-pound golden retriever in the corner. She wasn't worried about it, or he wasn't worried about it. He wasn't remorseful, he wasn't repentant, he didn't ask me for his... For my forgiveness, it was just a trail of crumbs led us to him. But, but they don't have remorse. This is what differentiates us from the animals. We can repent. We feel guilt. You feel the pang of conscience. You, you've, you feel sad. You want to be reconciled. You have, morality has been given to you by God. This is an incredible capacity to know right from wrong. Not just that, we're spiritual beings. I mean, we've been, he, God is spirit. He's made us spiritual. We can communicate with God spiritually. We can know God. God knows us. This is why we don't preach to animals. You, we never go out and speak the gospel to the Animals are not given a soul as humans made in the image of God. We ask the questions, what happens after death? We wonder about life. We think transcendent thoughts. You know, it says that God has set eternity in the heart of man. We wonder about that. There's a certain hauntedness we have. 
Even the non-Christian, there's a hauntedness. There's just the knowledge that you know there's something more, that we're not machines, that all of life is not comprised of just what is material and what's seen and what's felt and tasted and touched. There's got to be more. There's a hauntedness we feel. We're spiritual beings. Do you ever marvel at the capacities you have? I mean, are you, do you ever get just overwhelmed at your ability to, to rationally think, to morally evaluate, you know, to, to, be, to be so connected with another, to love someone so deeply? Do you ever marvel at, at the ability to even think about God and these transcendent thoughts of his beauty and his glory and his power, and you, you let your mind run away with this idea of a God who has no beginning and no end, who has no creator, who's always been. I mean, it's incredible. Are you ever overwhelmed by those thoughts? I think we're called to marvel over the very capacities that we have. You, know, you can look to the heavens and see the glory of God and see the expansiveness, but you can look, you can look in the mirror and see the glory. In in the shame when we when we fail and we fall into self-loathing, we miss the very glory of God, the capacities that He's given to us. We just measure ourselves by other people. And we do all the grading, and usually we end up on the short end of things. And, and, and yet we can marvel over these capacities He's given to us. And notice He's given them to male and female. Male and female, he created them. You know, most cultures over the history of humanity, men have been seen as more important. Christianity is unique in this, saying that male, female, he created. He wants us to know genders matter. He wants us to know. Three times he says, create it, male and female, he created them. He created them, male and female. And then he says again, male and female, he created them. Three times he says it. We, God has chosen to reveal himself and reflect himself to the world through two genders. It's a binary male-female. Equal value. The same, no. No, different, created different, but equal value. God doesn't want us to see the, the genders. It's not a social construct. It's not something we've come up with. It's not something that's the result of the fall. It's not an accident that it happened this way. God chose male and female to create them. Not the same for sure. Elizabeth Elliot says, In what sense is blue equal to red? Well, they're equal in the sense that they're both colors of the spectrum. Apart from that, they're different. We're different. Male, female are different, but we are of equal value, given the same capacities as one another. Now, we live in an age, of course, where gender has really, really uh, come into question. You know, people wonder about gender. Some think gender is fluid, that, that you can, there's, there's a, a wider range of choices between just male and female. Some people think that gender has been constructed by society. Others think that, that gender is something that we determine based upon how we perceive ourselves. And I would simply say that that our unity is found on this God who has made us male and female. I'm sympathetic to those who lack coherence in their own self-understanding. 
that they struggle with gender dysphoria. They're not exactly sure. I'm sympathetic to that. I want the church to be a safe place to talk about these things. Maybe you have friends that are are really struggling with this idea. Did he make us male and female? I want to remind you they bear God's image. I want to remind you that there is caution needed. We can debate whether we change pronouns or we can debate whether you whether you move to calling a person a different name, but, but let us be united on the fact that God has made them male and female. And both male and female have capacities of being rational, relational, moral, and spiritual. And let's marvel over these capacities. Let's worship God over them. That we are rad- He's made us different. And our value to him is in the image that he's given to us and the capacities that we have. But even these capacities and this dignity, there's a purpose to it. God has responsibility that he has given to us. We have responsibilities. Look with me at 28. In 28 he says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has given us tasks. God has created us out of the dust. He has stamped his image upon us, giving us these attributes that he has so that we can reflect him to the world, and we are called to then carry these tasks out. What are some of these tasks? Well, let me just draw your mind to two of them, to fill and to subdue, to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does this mean? I I want you to see first that it says, and God blessed them. So God has intended this command to be fruitful and multiply, he's intended for this to be a blessing to us, to bring us joy and satisfaction, this idea of being fruitful. Notice it says, God blessed them and said to them. So God is speaking to the couple now, and he's communicating with the couple in a way that he doesn't communicate to the rest of creation, but he communicates to them. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now these are commands, no doubt they're in the imperative tense, but I don't think they're commands like just dutifully obey. I think what God's doing here, because the commands follow the blessing. So God sees you and I walking out, being fruitful and multiplying, as joining with God in the creational work. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. God expects that we would find it incredible to join with him in creating life, creating societies, creating cultures. This is why we often say that having children is is procreation. You know, two Greek words, create with God. God is inviting us in. Now, we live in Western culture right now, which downplays the value of children. Children are expensive. They're difficult. They stop us from kind of flourishing, and they stop us from doing what we want to do. This is totally antithetical to the scriptures, where children are a great blessing from God. Are they hard work? Absolutely. But they're a blessing because God is calling us to be what he is, which is an image bearer, which is a creator, a cultivator. And this is why when those uh, who do not have children struggle with that, this is why it's so sad. It's so, we grieve with them. Because God wants to bless, and this blessing comes through filling and multiplying. But not just filling the earth, 
is also subduing the earth. And notice earlier in chapter, in chapter 126, he says that we're to have dominion and to subdue. You know, so when God calls us not just to fill, to subdue, he calls us to have dominion. Dominion doesn't mean we dominate creation. Uh, th- that word means to rule. It's used for royalty, right? That's why theologians say that we're like kings and queens of God's creation. We're vice regents. He's given us authority over his creation. This authority comes with responsibility. And this, what is the responsibility? Well, it's not to, of course, just exploit creation for our personal end. But he says we're called to subdue creation. Subdue means to cultivate, to order, to bring to fullness. So he has given man and woman, male and female, the responsibility to cause creation to flourish, to grow, to develop. So look at 29 with me. This is one way he kind of opens our eyes to it. He says, And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant and the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. Now, just a word here. If you think this is a call to being vegetarian or something like that, see, it's right there in the garden. We're not to eat meat. You only eat plant-based food. I do want to remind you that when the visitors came from heaven to Abraham before bringing judgment to Sodom, he fed them beef. Beef. (laughs) They ate beef. All of them did, and they loved it. So... I think what he's saying here is, I feel a little self-protective with my steak, you know. But the seed, I think what he's pointing to here is agriculture. That 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 is one way of subduing the earth. You you take the trees down, you plant crops, you you set up fields, you, you bring the ground to its fullness as it feeds and cares for one another. But it's not just agriculture, it can be music. You know, the making of instruments, the making of music. It can be literature. You know, taming words into poetry, subduing words into prose. You know, so we're to do with all of creation. We're called to subdue it. Subdue it, again, is not for my personal gain, but that I am to use the capacities that God has given to us to bring creation to be all that God intended it to be, to display his glory and to serve one another. So when you think about your own lives, you have been given dignity by God by bearing his image. And it's worthy of honor. You've been given capacities to reveal and to reflect him to the world just by your living. And you have responsibilities, tasks that God has given to us. You're to be basically a steward, not an owner. Do you see yourself as a steward? Do you see the things that you have, even the talents you have, even if you're above average intelligence, or maybe you really have a gift for writing, or you have a a gift for speaking, or you have a gift for, for science? Do you recognize that it's a gift? That you're a steward? It's not yours. I mean, it, God gave you these things. No doubt you work diligently to sharpen it and hone it. But it's still been given to you. What do you have that you haven't received? And why would you boast as if you didn't receive it? Do you feel that you're a steward? When you go to work, this is really a theology of work here. We're going to see it more next week. But when you go to work, do you go to work knowing that God has gifted me with capacities and abilities and experiences and education 
that, that I can serve my employer, or I can serve my client or customer or whoever that end person is on what you're... And I, I want to serve them for the glory of God and for their good. I, I want to work hard and diligently. I want to use everything I have because I'm a steward now. I'm not an owner. You came in naked and you're going out, well, probably in a cheap suit or maybe a nice dress. But you're not going out. You, you came in with nothing. You're going out before God, only with what you've done with your life, how you stewarded the gifts that you have. Do you feel yourself a steward? It might be a point of confession for us. It might be a point of repentance that we have clung very tightly to the things that we have, and they're ours, and they're mine, and I own them. And what we find here is, no, we don't. We're stewards. But not just stewards of the gifts that we have at work and in life, but stewards of creation. I mean, what we, we tend to err with creation. We tend to either go the Mother Earth path, which is we worship it, we treat it like kind of the you know, pantheism, it's the God of everything, or we tend to exploit it. We just use it for our own personal pleasure. The Christians should have the strongest ecology. I mean, they should have, they should be the wisest ones on stewarding the earth in the right way, of not being wasteful, not being ungrateful to God. Should we use the earth for production and for the advancement? Absolutely, but we ought to do it in a way as stewards and not owners knowing that we're going to be passing it on to our children. And not just creation, but even animals. You know, God has created animals. We're to care for animals. Now, I know Carol's doing back handsprings right now. I'm not saying go buy a dog. That's not what I'm saying. But, but I'm saying there's something about creation that we, as the apex of creation, we are to steward. The, when you see an eagle soar high above a canyon, or you see a cheetah, the fastest land animal, just racing at speeds that it can achieve. I mean, there, there's something almost intoxicating about it. I mean, it's just beautiful. That's what God's done. We're called to care. You know, in, in Jonah 4.11, when Jonah is resentful that God forgave the Ninevites, and he says to Jonah, God, he says, should I not pity that great city with 120,000 persons and much cattle? He puts the cattle in there. It's not because the cattle are equal to the people, but God cares for all of his creation. We're called to do the same. We're stewards. We're stewards of our lives. We're stewards of our gifts. We're stewards of the responsibilities that we have. So how well have you done when you consider the dignity? Do you, do you see and do you determine value of yourself and others based upon the dignity that comes to us by bearing the image of God? Or is it rooted in another calculus? And, and capacity. Do you marvel over the capacities that you have? Do you worship God because of it and, and, and are grateful? And responsibilities. Have you walked out these responsibilities well? I think many of us would say, no, we haven't. I mean, these are points maybe of repentance for us. Again, when Moses is writing this, they already know about the fall. So here we are in chapter 1 of Genesis, and we don't yet know about the fall. They all knew about the fall, and we know about the fall. We know how far we've fallen. We know that we don't draw dignity from the image-bearing capacity that God's given to us. We know that we own our own capacities. We know that we don't meet our responsibilities. We've fallen far from what God intended 
humans to be. G.K. Chesterton, a British essayist, writes, whatever else is true of man, it's certainly true that man is not what he was meant to be. It's true. We're not what we're meant to be. And when Moses is writing this, he knows that in the next chapter he's going to address the creation of the man and the woman. He's going to address the fall. Moses is trying to help us understand the life that we all experience. And so we have failed. And, and what Moses is preparing us is to see that we can't do it. Moses is readying the people. He's preparing them. One needs to come. One needs to come to deliver us. The perfect man, the, the man who bears the image of God, who will walk out the capacities of God, and will walk out the responsibilities of God. Now, Moses didn't know his name was Jesus, but it's not surprising to us when you look at the Scripture, Jesus does bear the image of God. In Colossians 1.15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He has come like us, bearing the image of God, having the same capacities that we, those moral, relational, rational, spiritual capacities. And he's come, but he, he's come to not just example humanity, but he's come to deliver us from failing to be the humans. Did you realize this? That Jesus was the only real, perfect human. And he's come to make us more human and to restore in us the image that has been marred by the fall. He's done this through his death and resurrection. Jesus has even been fruitful and multiplied. As he comes and draws men and women to himself, he is drawing and producing children for God through faith. This is the way John looks at it in John 1.12. He says, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of a husband's decision or human descent or of a person's will, but born of God. So there Jesus is bringing children. He's bringing rebirth. He's bringing us back into being restored in the image of God. He's subduing authorities, dark authorities, the powers of darkness, he disarms them, and then he is remaking us. That's what we saw last week, that passage in 2 Corinthians. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is the process that Christ has come to effect, which is to bring us back into bearing that image that was marred due to our sin by his own death for our sins and resurrection. So when you, when you look at human, who am I? We, all of us here. Now, of course, through Christ, the image is being restored. This is what it means to become a Christian, that by faith we come to Christ seeking forgiveness for our sins, Seeking for him to make us new. He said, I've come to make all things new. And he's making us. And this is, we're being renewed. That's why Paul speaks about the putting off and the putting on, thus renewing the image of God. This is how we're changing from one degree of glory to another. And we do that together as a church. But who are you? You've been made in the image of God. You have a dignity, a divine dignity that God has stamped upon you. You bear capacities that are similar to his, and you pick up responsibilities as you image him to the world. 
It's an incredible different definition for humanity than you'll find in any sociology class. Let's, let's just ask God in these moments following this, just quietly ask God to reveal these things to you, to open your eyes to the glory that he has given to us by giving us his image, that we might live and walk in light of it. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.